2: Hey, it's Max. I've got a uh, podcast recommendation for you. It's called The World As You'll Know It, and you should check it out. Here's a couple of reasons why. One, it's short. It's only five episodes. It's running uh, right now. It finishes before the election. And two, the conversations are just fascinating. Here's what the show is about. It's about what this moment, what COVID is going to mean long-term for some of the biggest issues facing us. So climate change, the economy, and the format of the show is really interesting. They take journalists. Uh, David Wallace-Wells, who's been on Long Form, who covers climate change, hosts the first episode. And the journalist interviews an expert in that field. So David interviewed Christiana Figueres, who is the architect of the Paris Accord. And the two of them talk about what this moment is going to mean for climate change. It's only five episodes. It's running now through election day. The show is called The World as You'll Know It. Go check it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, which starts right now. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with uh, Aaron Lammer and Evan Radliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey,
0: hello, Max. Uh, What have you got for us this week?
2: Uh, this week I talked to Latif Nasser, uh, and Latif was just named very recently, uh, co-host of Radiolab along with Lulu Miller, who was on the show at the beginning of the uh, pandemic times. Uh, before he was the co-host of Radiolab, he was the head of research at Radiolab. Before he was the head of research at Radiolab, he was a fact checker there. And before he was a fact checker there, he was a PhD student at harvard studying the history of science and he started uh just pitching radio lab blind he'd never done journalism before so we talked uh, about that whole arc but also how he finds stories and how he thinks about stories uh we talked about um uh being willing to be dumb uh and we also talked about this podcast he did um earlier this year called the other latif uh, which was about a prisoner at Gitmo who shares his name. It was a six-part series. And then we also talked about another six-part series that he did for Netflix, a TV show called Connected. The guy does a lot of stuff. Got a lot going on. We talked about it. Uh, and uh, I will say, it was, it was, um, it was buoying, you guys. These are, these, are, uh, these are not good times, but talking to him was a good time
0: if uh if you need a good time that uh it's good good for you and good for people who want to read start an email newsletter with mailchimp uh pretty soon i think everyone is gonna gonna have to have their own newsletter so you can get a jump on them by uh establishing your uh personal newsletter brand early with mailchimp who support the show and now here's max with latif Nasser.
2: Latif, hello! Hey, hi! Thanks for having me. Here we are, man. I've uh, I've really been looking forward to this, and uh, we had to like reschedule it because like uh, kid shenanigans happened, and now I feel like we have a very tight window in which because to because of kid to... shenanigans. Also,
3: I mean, uh, not shenanigans. I just have to take over kid care. That is the uh, reality.
2: You got to go take care of a baby. Correct.
3: Yeah, a baby who does not understand the concept of night. Uh, Or day (laughs) or sleep or awakenedness. Uh, This baby is really, it's just, I think you have kids, kid. I got two. Yeah, I got two. Yeah, you just, it's just shocking to me. The biggest surprise is like how they come out knowing nothing, like nothing. (laughs) You just like, it's like, oh, you don't know how to burp. You don't know how to eat. You'd really think some of those would be hardwired, but really it's like nothing.
2: So you are fully in the like, you are not sleeping right now. Oh yeah, no, definitely not. No, I'm super I'm I'm very tired right now. <laughs>
3: are you are you working? Yeah. Yeah. I just started back from Pat Leave, but but the idea we had was like, oh, sleep train right ahead of going back to work, then it'll be perfect. But then like what we didn't realize is the sleep training, like obviously that lasted longer and went way worse than we could have expected. And so now <laughs> it's like sleep training and coming back to work at the same time. It's really a uh, mess, but i 'm not going to complain because there are many people in many, many, many
2: worse uh, predicaments uh, right now for sure although it 's funny thinking of you going through like sleep training because I mean you and i don 't know each other, but i 'm very familiar with your work and and my like concept of you. If you were, like, in the midst of sleep training, you would just be, like, researching the hell out of, like, the nature of sleep.
3: Oh, that's, oh, I, that's what I do. But it's it's exactly that. And babies and infant development. Like, there's so much stuff that's so interesting. Um, and the idea of, like, when I, I used to think about pain, I, I would think about this a lot, like, which is, like, pain and crying. Like, they're both, like, these bodily alarm bells, you know? And they're not... They're not that good alarm bells. Like, they don't always (laughs) tell you the thing. Like, this baby is signaling problems that aren't necessarily really problems. Or or the baby thinks that they're problems, but... I as a parent can be like no 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 like you can't snooze or turn off the alarm right like it's like pain like chronic pain that's the whole problem like it's like the body's alarm bell mechanism is like hey there's a problem here there's a problem here but there's no problem there it's like an alarm clock that's not working but it's just funny to think about that theoretically but then like when you're it's in the middle of the night and there's like a effectively like a ambulance in your house uh you know the siren going off incessantly like it's like it's hard to think about or research
2: anything to be honest (laughs) do you have like a an on-off switch with that part of your brain like are you in work mode and you're like okay everything in the world is interesting and then like uh a non-work mode where you're like I'm just going to make some dinner.
3: No, I don't think I have an off switch necessarily. Like I think it's, and for a lot of people, it's like, I mean, I'm so lucky I found my wife. For a lot of people, it's like unbearable. Like they are like, you just, it's like, it's not that interesting actually. Like, let me just explain this to you because it's just not that interesting. Like you think it's interesting, but it's not that interesting. I feel like I I have a, I have such a low threshold for, like actually I feel like as a producer editor, I've had to like, Up my threshold because otherwise, I'd be just everything would be a story, and I'd be like, wow!
2: And I'd be like, shut (laughs) up, not interesting. Uh, but you have learned to do that. You've learned to quell your own enthusiasms.
3: Yeah. Or at least hide it, like be secretive about it a little bit. Cause it's like, <laughs> like when you go into a pitch meeting or, or like we have uh, like our editorial meetings where we decide what stories to do and I'm part of that decision-making process and you can't just love everything. Cause then, then like it devalues the currency of your love, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so you just have to sort of pick your battles and like, and really know that, everyone else has a higher threshold for like wanting to spend a, uh, an hour or two like noodling around and
2: thinking about some random thing. Well, are you saying that you um you actually do feel all that love? You just need to like mess with it for inflationary purposes? Yeah. Or have you actually learned to be like, no, 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 that story is boring, despite the fact that I am sort of predisposed to think that everything is interesting?
3: No, I, I think it's, I still love it. Because I think that there's a I mean, this is a thing you get told when you're a kid, you know, like, and I feel like I got told it once when I was a kid and it just stuck with me so hard. And I'm I'm sure you got told this, everybody, like when you're a kid and you're complaining, you're like, I'm bored, I'm bored. And then it's like, no, 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 no. Like the world is not boring. It's if you are finding the world boring, it's you that's boring. It's not about the world. The world is plenty interesting. And it's like there are ways to unlock every story. There are interesting nuggets. There are angles. Like even the most cliche sort of tired story, there are angles, there are ways to do it that you can bring it back to life. And sure, some stories require a lot more like, you know, the defibrillators uh, (laughs) turned up way higher than others. But still, like I I really do think that it's like, everything is interesting if you know the right angle, if you have the right framing, if you
2: bring the right question to it. Yeah, I guess I feel like, in some ways, that would be like exhausting a little bit, trying to figure out. Well, it's like, well, if I can unlock anything, yeah, then how do I choose how to spend my time? Which is actually like one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Is I feel like um, just watching your sort of like work and career from afar. This like Netflix series dropped, and I was just kind of like, when did he have time to do that? When did he have time to make a TV show? How he how does he do that? Uh, where where are these choices coming from? And you know, watch the Netflix show, and like, there's just an episode on Dust, which felt to me like an incredible flex. That was how it, <laughs> that was how it felt to me. It was just like, I'm going to name this Dust. And I think I just would never be like, I can find the thing that's interesting about Dust. In fact, Dust would be high on the list of things that I would say as a joke <laughs> for what I was going to do a story about. <laughs> well, well, p- partly, like,
3: a bunch of... The two of those stories in that series, uh, one of the other episodes, too, Digits, like, that was also, like, a... Like, I pitched it, you know, and I was like, okay, we're going to do this... 45 minute episode or hour long episode about math and about like a math, (laughs) like an obscure math law you've never heard of, huh? And then it's like, like just the, the idea of that, like it it is kind of a dare, like it's a dare to myself, like, or a dare to the, you know, and, and I think like everybody on the team took it that way where it's like, okay, we could do this. We could do this. It's like, it's hard, but we could do it. But, but to your point, like, I do think it, it is a kind of, um. Like I guess my like low threshold for what's interesting—it's—it is a weird a curse in a way because I have a lot of ideas. Many of them are terrible. Many, many majority of them are terrible. But I fall in love with them and I get really excited about them, and then they sort of burn a hole in my brain, and I need to get them out somehow. So I pitch a lot of stories at Radiolab. I, you know, I've done some stuff in print. I've done some uh, like stuff in TV. I've done some stuff in other mediums because it's just like. Ooh, this isn't this look at this shiny thing I found. Like look at this shiny <laughs> thing. like I, I need to tell the world because otherwise it's like it's just in my head, and I can't. and sometimes it's I mean, a lot of the times they're really bad ideas, and I'm very grateful for good, gifted editors who tell me that my bad ideas are bad ideas. But it is a kind of a burden where I'm like, oh, why am I like i like it's ok. I can this story it's fine. Like it doesn't matter. Like it's not going to be a different If I don't tell this factoid about paleo oceanography like it's like it's fine the world won't be substantially different like it's okay um but then i'll be like oh but i really that would be so fun to just tell that to everybody and it does take like people around me really good editors really good friends really good uh my wife shoots down so many of my ideas um but people who are much more ruthless uh to be like
2: uh -uh." Uh, i'll just put that one in the drawer Was it a process for you at all to, like, accept and appreciate ruthlessness? Yeah, yeah, because it hurts.
3: Initially, it takes so much courage to, like, stand up in front of everybody and say, I love this. Like, this is interesting. This is going to blow your mind. Like, this was a thing that I feel like I learned in college where it's like, it's so easy to hate everything and be cynical and just, like, there's a kind of ease to that. It's actually, it takes a lot more courage to go up in front of everybody and be like, this is awesome. I love this. That takes a lot of guts, I think, because you just put like a piece of your heart on the table. And I I really do feel that way. Like every story is like a little piece of my heart, every not even every story, every pitch, you know, and then they get they get stabbed like, and you're like, ah, that's (laughs) really horrible. Um, But but it does take a kind of like, if it happens enough times, you build up a kind of resilience to be like, it's partly like, oh, these people are are smart, and they know what they're doing, and I trust them enough to save me yeah. from myself. But it's also partly like, they're all idiots. I know. They don't know. <laughs> this is so beautiful and interesting, but I just, I'm not going to take the time and effort to persuade them because I have another bright, shiny thing over here.
2: Right. I'll agree with them this time, although we all know deep down everything is interesting. I mean, I do find that, like the image of you in a pitch meeting in which you were being pitched sort of like secretly contorting yourself like to be like I guess that's not for us but it's very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, uh, I guess it's not for us until
3: the New York Times Magazine does a huge spread on (laughs) it and like and we're all going to feel dumb but that's okay. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's really cool.
2: I'm interested in how you went from, you know, history of science, PhD to journalism. Like, were you always wired this way? And how did that wiring impact the choice to go from what I assume is sort of a path of academia to journalism? Okay, do you want the long story
3: or do you want the shorter story? I mean, I can tell you that nexus, but actually the thing I was doing in academia wasn't really trying to become an academic. It was trying to sort of duck uh, the, like I didn't know know what else to do. And I just was like, I want to be a a writer or something and I need something to write about. But it's also the.
2: It was trying to duck. It was trying to duck life.
3: Well, it was trying to duck life. It was also trying to duck the 2008 economic crisis where I was like, I'm not going to find a job. Like, I don't know what to do. And all the places I wanted to be a playwright and all the places that I applied to, they rejected me, all the playwriting grad schools. And then I was like, I don't know what to do. And I had this professor who I was a research assistant for. I was working basically for scholarship money. And uh, he was like, why don't you just do the program I did, which is this history of science program, which I didn't really have any background in at all. And he was like, and the trick is if you apply for a master's degree, they you have to pay them. But if you apply for a PhD, they pay you. But if you drop out of the PhD a year in, they give you a master's degree for free. So I was like, oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. That's what I'm going to do. And then I applied for this PhD program, got in, and I just fell into this field and I just fell in love with it. And I just, I got so excited about it. There were so many stories in this field, the history of science, that I felt like everybody ought to know. Like there were stories that had the kind of, philosophical profundity, the ambition, the universality of science, you know, but I, I had never really been able to get into science like the sort of meticulousness and the the kind of the lab work and all that. I, it never just clicked in my brain. But all of a sudden, history of science, it was like, oh, these are stories, stories about people who are doing science or who did science or changed the way we all think. And it's like, oh, I can get on board with that. Like, that I get. And so so I just fell in love with these stories. And I would just tell my friends. I would, like, I'll go out and be like, you cannot believe this. This is nuts. <laughs> and I, I would tell my friends. And then I would, like, get so excited about them. And I would write them up. And I would submit them to, like, journal, like, scholarly journals. And I would just get rejected over and over and over again. And I was like, okay, what do I do now And at the time, I probably knew like maybe two podcasts, uh, Radio Lab being one of them. And I just, I liked their sensibility. And so I basically cold called or cold emailed the executive producer and was like, hey, I got a bunch of stories from the history of science. Like, I don't even know like how this goes, but you guys should do a story on this and on this and on this and on this. And I remember the stories I pitched first were like real dumb uh, little things. But do you remember any of them? Yeah, so there was one about okay, so this was uh, remember like around the time of the um financial crisis and there, there I remembered this I learned about this this crazy thing. It was called cipher stroke and it was this mental illness that uh, so, uh you can have these kinds of um And there's a more interesting question about whether they exist or not, whatever. Um, This question of like time or culture delineated, delimited mental illnesses. And so one of them, it was called cipher stroke. And it was in Germany uh, between the wars when, you know, when inflation was crazy. And, you know, the image of like people like carrying a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread or whatever. So they had crazy inflation. And there was this mental illness that developed in Germany uh, around that time where people they would be completely kind of normal living their days having a healthy normal life and then the one thing that would sort of mess them up is that whenever it came to numbers, they were just all out of whack. So you'd ask someone like, how many kids do you have? And instead of saying, I have two kids, they'd say like, I have 210 million kids or something. Like, <laughs> and it's just like crazy. Like the And this was a thing that, uh, you know, psychiatrists like noted enough to call, make an illness out of it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like we're in an economic crisis where people are talking in the, in the millions and billions and stuff. And here's this weird factoid from the history of medicine that I can just tell you that's a, a, a an interesting thing. Anyway, there was like not really a story there it was just kind of a factoid but anyway so i just pitched a whole bunch of them and i was like here 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 uh here's some interesting things and the executive producer her name was ellen horn a wonderful person for even taking my call like you know off the street basically and she was like no 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 but i haven't heard any of those pitches before so just keep pitching us cuz uh those are interesting like i i like them so i just i just kind of kept pitching and then i finally one of my stories Uh, They accepted one of my stories, which was like a real trip because it was one of those things where I remember where they were like, oh, you want to come into the studio and like talk about the story? And I was like, oh, no, like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, it was one of those things where I was just pitching stories because that was the fun. And then I didn't know what came next or what, what I was supposed to do after that.
2: What was that meeting like? Oh, it was
3: terrifying. Like, I, I had to tell the story uh, that I pitched to Jada Boomrod and uh, Robert Carlwich, who were both, like, I people who I didn't even realize had fleshly bodies, um, <laughs> and I just kind of told them the story the way I would have told, you know, a friend of mine or something. Um, and it went great, and they loved it, but it was super intimidating. Did you practice? Yeah, I totally. Like, I wrote up a whole script and memorized it, and we went way off the script, but I, I acted like it was a play, like I was playwriting it, you know? But then, so they took that story, then they took, uh, you know, months or even a year or whatever later, they took another. By that point, I'd been doing the same thing, like pitching stories to, I was in Boston, so the Boston Globe and other places. And um, yeah, and so I started, I was like, oh, I guess I'm a journalist now. (laughs) Um, Not that I really knew kind of what that was about, uh, but so I sort of stumbled into writing these like long form essays or doing long form stories. And I just loved it. And for me, it was like kind of like, I mean, it was journalism in a way, but it was also, it was
2: like nonfiction playwriting, you know? Help me help me understand what you mean by that. I, I, I didn't know that you had wanted to be a playwright and I feel like some things are clicking for me now, <laughs> but help me understand what you mean by that.
3: Okay, so uh, to me, like if you go to see a play or you go to see a movie or you go to read a news story, you're kind of like, even though obviously some of these people are real people and some of these people are pretend people that you're reading about or seeing, watching or whatever, you as a viewer- or a, a consumer or whatever, you're kind of expecting the same thing. Like sh- stories have shapes, you know, like you are following a main character and there's an inciting incident. You know, it's like one day this person was walking down the street and then they got hit by a anvil or whatever it is, right? There's an inciting incident. And then that person, you know, there's a, some kind of a question or a quest that they go on. And then they have some obstacles and trying to get to the bottom of that question or trying to sort of reach the fulfilling end of that quest. And there's, so there, there's these tribulations and then ultimately, they kind of gain some nugget of wisdom and they're a different person by the end from where they started and they learn something and it all sort of, even if you're not, you don't have a kind of a total resolution, you want some kind of a, yeah, you, you want some reason to have gone on the journey. Like to me, that's like a very typical, like that shape is everywhere and Mm -hmm. in every kind of story, nonfiction and fiction. Uh, and so you just have to find, stories that sort of generally fit that shape and stories where you're actually kind of learning something along the way. And that's like, oh, okay, I could do that. Like, oh, okay. So I'm just playwriting. Like, and I I don't get as much authority to write other people's words, but but it's still the same thing. Like I get to choose who the characters in the story are. I get to Mm -hmm. decide when to start the story and when to end the story. I get to decide what's the moral of the story in the end, you know, like to me, these are all these kind of I feel like I'm still playwriting. Uh, It's just, uh, it's not in the theater.
2: Well, there's this other aspect of theater though, right? So if you like came to journalism somewhat blind through Radiolab, like there is this thing that's slightly different with radio journalism and particularly that kind of style of it. There's like an element of performance. Mm. Yeah, it's like slightly performative. I mean, not to get like too meta, but like, this is slightly performative, yeah, right. And like i I uh, produce these podcasts, and I spend time tracking with people. And it's kind of like more energy, you know,, yeah. directions that feel not that dissimilar to what maybe a director of a play would encourage actors to do, yeah. And uh, I mean, does that feel like connective tissue, or does it feel like i'm I'm grabbing at straws?
3: No, I mean, I, I do think that that's right. But I do also think – so I did a story a while back on the history of Candid Camera, the show Candid Camera, which I
2: love. Oh, yeah. I remember that one.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, but there's an idea in that episode, which is an idea that Alan Funt, the creator of Candid Camera, kind of – I forget whether it was the scholar who wrote about him or him himself, whatever. It doesn't matter. But but the idea was called Bugging the Backstage. So Candid Camera started as a radio show where there was a sort of a, someone in the booth interviewing somebody you know, in the guest chair. And what he would do was he would, there was like a little red recording light and he would be like, he would, he disabled the little red recording light. And then he was like, okay, we're just going to do a practice. And then he would just do the practice, but he would record the whole thing. And then he would tell the person after, hey, I recorded it. Is it cool if I use that? And not to say that I'm like up to any sleazy uh, tactics or anything, but, (laughs) but, but to me, like I do think. It is a performance for sure, but in a way in this like post-candid camera world, like everything is kind of a performance. Like I feel like the way that it's all it's sort of sloshed around. Like I don't think that there's not some like objective true account of the world that if you put your camera in just the right place, you're going to capture. Like it's all mm-hmm. it's all performance. Like I think everything these are all stories that we're weaving to tell each other to make sense of the world. Like that's kind of the whole game. It's like chaos and death and like, <laughs> like it's like in the face of the abyss. Like we're telling ourselves these stories to pass the time and help make sense of it. And I think to me, it's like inviting people to come and, and do their little dance. Sure. Um, it's true. This is all performance. But how can I find the sort of truest moments and then script around that, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that feels connected to playwriting too.
3: Yeah, because I think it's like even playwriting, even the most artificial story that gets made up, like even the most like if you read a novel that's set in some fantastical future with orcs and robots or whatever, like even that for it to be worth you know, a damn, it has to be anchored in real experience, like real life. It has to feel... There has to be something there that's sort of recognizably human, you know? And I think that that's the point of it. It's like, your story's not going to be any good if it's all made up. Like, it's true that truth is stranger than fiction, but like, you need the truth, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction, you need that truth to sort of ground you and to make it something that people actually lean into and feels like hooks into their
2: lives, you know, or hooks into their selves. So eventually you figure out how to um, be doing like playwriting on the radio and do a bunch (laughs) of stories with with real people, real people playwriting on the radio and then end up as the director of research at Radiolab. What does that mean? No, it's nothing. It was a
3: totally made up job. Like it was a made up job title. It had no meaning whatsoever. But the thing was that one of the things they brought me in as was to kind of build out the fact-checking at Radiolab. And I had been, as a, uh, in grad school, the way I, like a job that I had was um, being a research assistant. So I got really good at finding stuff. That was like, I think the biggest and best thing I got out of grad school was sort of an ability to... Yeah, to look beyond Google in a way, yeah. and so when they hired me, it was basically like, okay, why don't you do a producer stuff, but also since you're good at footnoting and stuff, like why don't you actually footnote everything we make uh, and and do fact checking? And so at, at the beginning, I was the fact checker for Radiolab, and so I would go over like with a fine tooth comb every single line of every single episode, um, and then soon after, we got like freelance fact checkers who work with us uh, who are like exceptionally good. But at the beginning, it was just me. And I was like, oh, okay, how do I do this? And I, I was, it was really hard, but I and stressful. Oh my God, stressful. But I learned. Yeah, a lot it sounds of it. so daunting. It's so stressful. Oh my God. Fact checkers, they are, uh, I feel like almost single handedly going to save our uh, republic here. Um They are <laughs> so important and good, but it is such a, it's like a toxic job because you, it requires all this, Like to feel like you're on the line in a way for something that, you know, a reporter you just met yesterday is saying, and you're like, I don't, how would I know? Like if that's true or not, (laughs) this thing that I heard about, you know, a topic that I never thought about until this very minute, you know, they do like God's work,
2: fact checkers. Did it feel like a thing that you could only do for so long because oh, it was so God. stressful? Oh
3: yeah, I was like, get me out of here! I was like begging to get off the fact check desk.
2: I like when I watch
3: the presidential debates or whatever, like all the fact checkers. I'm like, oh my! It, like it was stressful for me. I was doing like a long form thing where I had lots of time. Like this is like a yeah, these are people who
2: we need to like support, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> like essential workers or something. So at that point in your career, like help me understand what you were thinking about wanting to do. So it's like fact checking is uh deeply, deeply stressful. You're only like a handful of years into doing uh nonfiction playwright journalism. Yeah. Like, where were you at? What did you want to be doing? What were your like uh, ambitions then?
3: I'm like, the way my brain works, I had no five-year, 10-year. I had no plans, really. A lot of people, they go to a show and they're like, oh, one day I'm going to host my own show or I'm going to start my own show or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I had none of that. For me, it was like, To find a place like a home with a lot of other like weird, interesting people like who can kind of like bat ideas back and forth with me. And then also like in a podcast to have like a container for my stories and ideas that I can kind of just and also to work with people who like between the editors, the composers, the fact checkers, the this people, the that people like to have a team where it's like, oh, this story. Like, it's so much better than I could have ever made it by myself. Like, if mm-hmm. I had made this story by myself, it would be a shadow of kind of the thing that I got to make. And so Radio Lab, I was just kind of content there. Like, I was like, I'm happy to keep doing this forever. Like, here's a fun container. Here's my smart weirdo work family. And here's, like, the stories that come out the other end are, like, something that I'm actually quite proud of and are better than I could have made on my own, you know?
2: Can we talk a little bit about finding stories? Sure. Because it feels like that, that's part of what you were working on then, too. You know, you've got this piece on transom, I think from last year, sort of about like uh, the like Latif Bible of story finding. Yeah, right. How did you arrive at that? What what is your theory of story finding at this sure. point? Sure.
3: To me, I think so much of it, so much of it, is about the framing of it. Like, it's like before you go start to find a story, it's like what is the nature of knowledge and stories. Like, there's this thing that one of my professors when I was in grad school, his name's Hisakuriyama. He told me and it just it still echoes in my head like more than 10 years later. He said, it's not that 99.9% of the most interesting questions in the world haven't been answered. It's that 99.9% of the most interesting questions in the world haven't even been asked yet. And like this feeling that it's like we think we're so smart. We think we can fill all these pages of all these newspapers with stories. But like, really, we are just like the amount that we know is like is like a penny. It's nothing. And there are just like stories all around us, you know, that for whatever like filter biases we have, we miss constantly. And so to me, that the way to find stories is to sort of hack that filter, you know? And it's like, you know, you look at all the different front pages of so many newspapers, they'll all be the same story. Like... You know, the, or the New York Times thing, all the news that's fit to print. Like, there's no way there's all the news that's fit to print in one day on planet Earth with seven and a half billion people, not to mention, like, uh, corporations and <laughs> birds and uh, microbes <laughs> and this and that and the other thing. Like, there's no way. There's no way this number of pages is going to encapsulate all of that for 24 hours on planet Earth. And that's just planet <laughs> Earth. There's a lot of other planets. There's
2: a lot of other galaxies. Um well, <laughs> This is my question though. Is it seems to me and I'm maybe I'm wrong. It just seems to me like that's just like in you somewhere. And so, did you have to hack that frame for yourself or not. And if so, it's like how do other people hack it?
3: Yeah, I think to me, grad school was a big hack on that. Like I remember one of the first exercises we had in grad school, there was like a methods seminar or whatever. And one of the things we did is like the assignment was like go look at a newspaper from whatever year. I forget what year it was, like it might have been 1950 or or there was one where we did it and it was like a colonial America newspaper or whatever it was. And When you look at those newspapers, one of the things that I remember when I was doing that exercise, was it on microfilm? I think it was on microfilm. And so you're going through, and then you look at the list of bestsellers, right, from 1950, whatever. And what you realize is, like, you've heard of none of them, zero Mm -hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. These were the bestsellers, some that had been on the charts for so many weeks in a row that all the people in the whole country had been talking about, buzzing about, obsessing about. We've never heard of <laughs> any of them. Like, just because they're not Googleable, you know what I mean? Like, we think we know so much, but we don't. Like, we are so yeah. forgetful. We're so myopic. We're so self-centered. We're so – like, it's like our all of these are filters, you know? And it's like, how do you – Sorry for there's so many mixed metaphors here. Um, If people are picking those low-hanging fruits, right, of stories, like it's like, oh, okay, that's easy. That's a a story. And then you're like, okay, and I see that, you know, it gets picked up and it's in every newspaper or whatever. It's like, how do I then, like a monkey, climb up the tree, do a backflip to this branch that nobody's been on? And oh man, there's a whole like bounty of fruits nobody's ever even heard of like up there, but only because we've all been just stripping these same branches right at the bottom
2: you know yeah and it's i mean i guess that connecting to the sort of penny idea it's only 0.001 percent that can be on the front page like it just like just the law of the math right is that it can only be this absolute surface and if you can just find a way to look elsewhere or on the branch that you've backflipped to as a monkey there could be all kinds of things there and, and I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, if you don't see the world that way, mm-hmm. if you are a low hanging fruit person, <laughs> right? If you didn't go to grad school, if you didn't, if you never got back and looked at a newspaper from 1950, what is the way that people can do that more in their work? What is the hack? Or is it just like waking up every morning with a picture of a tree?
3: I really do think that people have like, and you probably know this. Too having kids like I think we're all born with it. it's not a a crazy thing like we all are born and then we're kids and we ask dumb questions all the time questions that are you know and I think we all have them in us and it's like listening turning up the volume on those stupid questions that you ask to me yeah it's just like jettisoning these assumptions like like news like I I find it such a funny thing like it's like and, and granted it would take a history grad student maybe to say this but it's like you think just because something's new, it's important or interesting or is going to change your mind or perspective or like, no, in fact, it's the opposite. Like to me, it's like, oh, let's actually like, let's look at stories that have been around for a while that mm-hmm. actually like that probably exert more of an influence or are somehow more illuminating or we've actually had time to think about and, and digest. Like to me, that I don't know, there's so many like filter biases that that work in the wrong direction. And to me, the, the thing to do is turn up the volume on your dumb questions on your like Wikipedia surfing on your like imaginative curiosity and follow that. And maybe, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll go to a totally absurd place that nobody cares about. But one time you'll find a story that you're like, how is nobody like, why am I
2: alone here? How is nobody else paying attention to this story? It is about getting in touch with your own dumb questions. And I feel like there's like a slight elephant in the room in this conversation, which is that the grad school that you keep like um, praising is Harvard. You're a Harvard PhD. Yeah. And maybe this is uh, unfair and stereotypical, but I would assume that most Harvard PhDs would be significantly less comfortable than you are making a career out of asking questions that are somewhere between simple and dumb. I mean, that I feel like your work is totally based in this idea of not assuming you know anything. Yeah. Which runs so counter to like my concept of the Harvard PhD. <laughs> and I, I don't really even have a question. It's just like that gap is interesting to me. And it's so clear in the radio stuff. It's, all, it's so clear in like the TV show, you know, it's just the whole show is kind of you being like, how does that work? <laughs> and most people, I think, are, are just really, really uncomfortable with being seen as dumb.
3: Yeah, it's. A, it's a, I think there's a there's an ego thing to it, and in a way, I feel like I definitely like having a Harvard PhD helps you get over that speed bump of ego. But I don't think you need it. Like, we should be able to walk into a thing and say, "Look, I." if you have the genuine commitment to learn and the kind of intellectual humility to say that you, you don't already know the answer. Like, I think every story is open to you. Can you learn that? I think you, you definitely practice and, 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 and like asking a dumb question. Oh my God. It's like to a smarty is hard. Like it takes a bunch of times, like working up to it and writing it out ahead of time. And like, Because I don't know, we all don't want to seem dumb. Uh, There's this sort of self-preservation. But like we are dumb, like all of us necessarily. Like the machinery we have in our head is not enough. As impressive as it is, it's not enough to fathom even a a drop of the ocean. You know what I mean? Like you're dumb. It's okay. Like be okay (laughs) with that. And that's the first step to actually like to me to... Kind of having your own mind blown and then being able, in turn, as a storyteller, as a journalist, as a playwright, as a whatever, to blowing minds of other people. There's also just one last thing I want to say about the dumb questions, if I can. Great. Um, Yeah. Dumb questions, it is a thing. You should do it. Like, we all should. Even in our lives, I think it's, like, a really valuable thing. But there's something paired with it, which is, like, an earnest desire to learn and a kind of a humility that is not, like making fun of or kind of like trying to undermine or like sarcastically rip on you know the person who's been like generous enough to like give you their time and brain you know and if you have that like i I feel like even the smartiest of smart people even the snootiest of snooty people like if you can kind of win them over and convince them that oh hey i'm actually here to learn like i'm not here to waste your time like like somehow that that it's powerful and important and it it lets the other stuff. Happen, you know?
2: The other way that I think about that, it's just interesting what you just said. Cause I, I've been confused for a long time about why earnestness is like bad. <laughs> yeah. Like being earnest is kind of like a pejorative. Yeah. And I, I'm genuinely confused as to why.
3: Yeah. Oh, I also I feel like I get ripped on that a lot like and it's like this feeling it's like oh you're like a simpleton or something or you can't like manage two different tones or registers or like or ideas at the same time or something like it's like oh this is and also like at a, you know it's also true that like at a time when um. Facts are complicated and ideas are like they can cut in ways that you can't even expect. Like you, you It vaguely you need...
2: feels like the apocalypse. <laughs>
3: yeah, the apocalypse. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> like it's like then coming out and being like, hey, like frogs are cool or whatever it is, right? Like it just feels <laughs> inadequate for this moment or something. And I get that. But I, I I do think you're right. Like earnestness, like to me, that's how I approach the world. And like it's how I want to engage with the world. Like maybe it's just a temperament thing or something. I don't know.
2: I think the other version of Dumb Question is just like, it's not dumb. It's just shorter. It's like literally just simpler. It's not dumb. It's like not forcing your own knowledge into it. They're they're different things. Yeah,
3: uh, a friend of mine who's a math teacher, he he said this once to me and I think about it all the time. He's like there are two kinds of teachers. There's one kind of teacher that like actually wants you to learn and like is excited to give you this gift. And there's another kind of teacher who just like wants to show off how much they know. And it's like it's like that that difference is a really crucial difference. Like where it's like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah. I actually want to know" or "I want the world to know." And here's this quick question because it's like this is the thing I'm thinking. What do you think? As opposed to like well, if you read the debida, the <laughs> as a, uh, you know, as I will have argued elsewhere, debadibida and then you're like, okay, yeah, yeah.
2: All right, you got to go talk to a very small baby very soon. But uh, I'm interested in how that sort of like uh combination of willingness to sort of admit what you don't know and curiosity to figure it out. It feels like that's like um, such a natural pairing with Radiolab, Mm. right? I just makes sense. Like, that is the vessel into which that kind of, like, sensibility and tone and curiosity is, like, best suited. But I'm interested in how it fits for you with the other Latif, Mm. with that series that you did. Did that feel distinct to you? Did it feel different? Or did it feel totally of a piece of the rest of your work? Yeah.
3: To me, that story was unlike anything I've done. and, And in a way, I did. As we've already been talking about, like, I spend so much of my time and so much of the joy of my life is finding stories. And yet, this was the first time it felt like a story, like, found me, chose me, and I couldn't not tell it. And it wasn't something in my wheelhouse. It wasn't a thing I was sort of comfortable uh, with, to be honest. Like, Like, I hate, like, Muslim terrorist tropes and stories and and in fiction and nonfiction and anywhere like i hate i hate torture scenes and tv shows i hate like i hate all of this stuff like it's not something that i ever want to make more of and put into the world and yet it felt like this story grabbed me and i just i was like i cannot do something
2: about this just before we get any further can you give the like very quick synopsis of it
3: sure so the, the kind of start of it was that I was on Twitter one day. I was procrastinating. I saw someone tweeting about me to the president of the United States. I was like, what? What? Uh, I did not understand the tweet. It turned out it was not about me. It was about a guy who had my same name and who happened to be a detainee 244 at Guantanamo Bay. And I had never heard of this guy. I didn't know anything about him. But all of a sudden, I needed to know everything about him. And the first thing, one of the first things I found was this WikiLeaks document about him from the Department of Defense, which had this kind of like basically like a rap sheet where it said that he was Al-Qaeda's top explosives expert. He was a military aide to Osama bin Laden. He blew up the famous uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site, the Bamiyan Buddha statues. Um, He did, you know, just a real kind of a rogue's CV. And then after that, I connected with his defense attorney who told me, no, 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 this guy is totally innocent, he was never in Al-Qaeda, didn't know Bin Laden, was just at the wrong place at the wrong time, and got swept up by the Northern Alliance and then uh, sold for a bounty to the United States, and he has been in American custody for, if you count now, almost uh, 19, 20 years, without a trial, without charges. And on top of that, in 2016, he was cleared to go home, uh, back to Morocco unanimously by a bunch of sort of career civil servants working under the Obama administration. Uh, he was freed to go home. And he just, for some mysterious paperwork kind of a reason, he did not go home. And so he's still there in Guantanamo Bay, despite the fact that sort of on paper he's
2: free to go home. It's really complicated. It's a very complicated story. It's a hard story. And I imagine it's a really hard story to tell. Yeah. So when you say, like, it grabbed you and wouldn't let go, like, you had to do it. Yeah. What does that mean? It seems like an easier one to not do to me is maybe what I'm yeah. asking. You yeah. know Yeah, I mean? and
3: it's funny. I, like, looked back at when I first pitched it in the Radiolab pitch meeting. I looked back at the, like, meeting notes from that meeting, and it had four comments. One was, don't do it. It seems dangerous. One was... I don't know, miscarriage of justice at Guantanamo doesn't seem super surprising. Uh, Let's not do it. And then the other two were me trying to like gin up more interest in it and failing. Um, But yeah, so it was a story that like, I feel like a lot of people were like, nah, just pass. But to me, it was several things. One, this guy has my name. Like names to me are very important. Names to me are really, really special. Like you get your name... At the same time as you get your life, like that's important. So that was something. And then the fact that like really nobody besides this guy's lawyer and like one activist, a guy named Andy Worthington, had written about this guy at all, at all, at all. It felt like, and if I ignored him, like he was just going to keep sitting there and maybe he was cleared or maybe he was innocent and he was just there forever without a trial it felt like, in a way, this is such a weird analogy. It felt like there was like a bat signal that was like flashed up with my name, and like only I could see it. And it was like this guy, he needed my help, but I didn't even know if he like does this guy deserve my help? Is is he worthy of my help? Like, but, but I don't even really know either way. Um, but it was like this bat signal that only I could see. And it turns out actually a bunch of other reporters were, had been at the same, around the same time working on a a story about this guy anyway, but I I didn't know that. And for me, it was like, if I don't do something about this guy, like no one's, who is going to do? It's been over 15 years and nobody has written anything about this guy in any major publication. There's no reason for me to believe that this guy is going to get any kind of a fair shake, any kind of a, a due process, any kind of a thing that I would want if I was in his place. And it was very easy for me to imagine being in his place because he had my same name, you know?
2: <laughs> so you felt almost like a moral responsibility to do it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And not because I, like, I, I actively did not want to do it. And I, I then felt like I, no one else is gonna. And that just seems like that's too wrong. Like it's too wrong. He's still there. Yeah. I think about it all the time. I think about him all the time. And I still have sort of uh, complicated feelings about what he may have done or not did, what I even can know about him. I've never been able to talk to him. I've never been able to hear his voice. I so desperately want to. But I think about him all the time. Like it, it uh, There was this one time we went to this. Uh, my wife and I went to this really fancy. Um, I, I'll just say it. My, so my wife is a TV writer, and she got nominated for an Emmy. Um, so we went to the Emmys. And I was wearing like a tuxedo and we were both like, I was so proud of my wife and we went and, and like still like that whole night I was like, how am I at the, I'm like in a tuxedo at the Emmys and there's a guy with my name in Guantanamo Bay. Like I could not shake that the whole night. I was like, what the hell? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like uh, it just felt so absurd And like just all the time, I'm like, oh, that whole day that I spent doing like that guy was in Guantanamo Bay and didn't have a trial. And like there's feels like no legal, reasonable justification for him to be there. And I know there are many more and even worse miscarriages of justice out there. Somehow the fact that this guy had my name and that there was sort of enough about his life story that allowed me to kind of like hook into his story and imagine myself in it. It just grabbed me in a way. And has it changed at all having done it? No. I, like, think about him all the time. I, I still write letters to him and to his lawyers. It's also weird because I know through his lawyers that he thinks about me a lot. And he's a science nerd, too. Like, and even the work that I do that's not about him, his lawyers were like, hey, can you get your TV show on a DVD for us so that I could get it past the, like, Guantanamo censors to get to him? Because he really, like, he's a science nerd. He loves that kind of thing. Like, he'd love it. And so I'm like, ah, so he's, like, I'm obsessed with him. He's obsessed with me. We're not allowed to talk. We've never been allowed to talk. And he's in this kind of crazy, precarious situation. Yeah, I just want to talk to this guy. I just want to interview this guy. I just want to kind of understand him and this kind of insane life journey he went on.
2: So this story sort of, like, bat signals to you. It doesn't actually fit exactly with the kind of work that you're normally doing. It's complicated. It's hard to find real resolution in it. You pour yourself into it anyway. You put out this like completed series, but then it's just all the same still.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And also, like in addition to that, this was the like, I, I work hard on every story I do. Uh, and I have for, you know, since I started being a journalist, like, but this is the only time when I've gotten personal only time, the only time I've ever kind of talked about myself more than just like, Oh, hey, I'm a neat, interesting guy who's interested in a lot of things. Like this was the, a time where I sort of dug deep, like I really like I carved out a lot of my and like had to do a lot of like, Almost like therapy uh, between myself and my the producers who were closest with me, Sarakari and Susie Lechtenberg, like I would send them like long, like every night, like I feel like I would like write and like send them I like worked so hard on the story. And you're right, like it came out the pandemic, like it was literally the day after our final episode launched like at night and then the morning after that we had an, a team radio lab meeting where it was like okay uh, this is a state of editorial emergency we're covering COVID now let's do this, do this it was like not even an hour of like oh okay like what does this mean what affected this have in the world like it was a weird thing where it was like like nothing really has changed but maybe something will change at the ballot box and like I, I think that the U.S. government made a sort of a pledge to this guy to do this thing. And whether it's going to get done or not really will depend on the election and which way that will go. We can't know, obviously, for now. But I just don't know what's going to happen. And I think about it all the time. And I think about it for me, but now I also think about it for him.
2: It's an interesting uh, note for you to end on. You have to go uh, take care of your child now. I do. But I have one more question, which was actually not a question I came up with. I uh, talked to a colleague of yours and was like, I'm going to interview Latif, is there anything you want to know? And they were like, "Um, yeah, does he ever get mad? Does he does he ever get mad? <laughs> Which I was like, "Oh man, that's actually a great question." Like I uh, I've consumed all of this person's work. It's very hard for me to imagine him getting mad. That's kind of like an endearing thing that that you also are wondering that and you know him so well. That's
3: so funny that a coworker said that. Yeah, no, cuz yeah. it's true. I ne- I I never get mad. I get sad. I like turn in on myself and crumple and get disappointed and depressed and stuff, but I don't I don't get mad really. Cuz I just think it's like there's I feel like fury like righteous fury or anger it requires a level of like certitude that you know what what to get mad at and i feel like i never have that like i I think it's like i don't know i don't stand firm enough anywhere to like look down on someone and like get mad at them or get mad at like a i don't know whatever yeah i just i just get
2: sad i never get mad if you don't know 99.99% 99.99% of what there is to know in the world. How can you possibly get mad about the 0.001% you know?
3: Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of how I how I feel. Like, it's, uh,
2: yeah, I'm trying to think of the last time I got mad. Well, here's the thing, though. It's like, you just sounded a little mad that Latif Nasser is still in Gitmo. Yeah.
3: Yeah, right. It's a kind of a, it's a mad, sad cocktail. Uh, and, uh yeah, that's, I guess that's the closest I get. Like I get, I get really frustrated sometimes about the world. I mean, and it, it hurts. Like, it, you know, you take a hit and you're like, oh, that wasn't what I expected or wanted or wished that the world was like or what this person was like that I admire or whatever it is. But then you kind of stumble back and you get your, you drink your mad sad cocktail. And <laughs> then you, I think it, like, it just takes remembering like, oh, I am tiny. This is tiny. The world is big. There are many other things. There are many other things to uh, fall in love with, to get excited about, to to marvel at. Like there are other things out there. And that's sort of a Zen thing to say, and it's a weird time to say it, like at a time where it's the opposite. It's like, get mad, go out, like be an activist, do this, do that. That's like just not my constitution. Like I'm just like, ah, okay, let me go find another thing that I can just like, uh, another shell I can polish or something, you know? Like it's like, like it's just, um, I feel like they're, different reporters are built for different moments. I feel like I'm not built for this moment of like, get like righteous angry and and go out and do something. Like to me, it's like, oh, that's really sad. I, uh, I should do a story about that. But I, uh, that's like really depressing. And how do you like, oh, but look at this other shiny thing over here. Like it's that, <laughs> that's me. Look at this frog. <laughs> look at this frog. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Well, Latif, thank you for uh, taking some moments, man. I appreciate it.
3: You are uh, such a class act.
2: And uh, I'm so
3: flattered still that you asked me to chat.
0: Thanks
2: for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer and our intern is Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp for continuing to make this show possible and thanks so much to latif nasser for uh you know i'll say this it's um it's a tough time it's not a good time talking to latif good time had a good time we'll see you next week